to my dear brethren and sisters, class members. We come tonight to consider once again Adna. Adna has brought Ishbosheth to Mahanaim on the east of Jordan and there has declared him to be king. Whilst knowing that David has already been anointed king in Hebron over Judah and knowing also, as we shall ultimately discover, that Yahweh had anointed David to be king over all the united tribes. Abner knew that. And yet despite knowing what the will of Yahweh was, he takes the weak and the timid Ishbosheth and says, I'm going to make you a king. Because Abner wished to be the power behind the king. And in our last study we saw how that Abner reached a stage where he felt that it was time for a showdown between David and the name of Ishbosheth, but really between David and Abner. So he led out a small army. He led them from Mahanaim to Gideon, over on the west of Jordan, and not all that far from Jerusalem. There he was met with a similar army by Joab, and we discovered the outcome of that and the dreadful circumstances that led to the deaths of these men at the pool of Gideon. And so Abner's army was bested by the army of Joab. They were defeated and they began to flee. And in the 18th verse there is a special mention made that there were three sons of Zeruiah, that is David's sister. Three sons of Zeruiah there, Joab and Abishai and Asahil. And Asahel was as light of foot as a wild robe. These were the three nephews of David that had quite prominent places in the army and the camp of David throughout his tribulations and trials and difficulties. There were certain things about these three men that David found very difficult to come to grips with. A little later on we're going to find that we're going to have the words of David addressed to us in the scripture and he says, Ye sons of Zeruiah, be too hard for me. They all had a stroke of ruthlessness about them. They were all rather difficult men to deal with. They always felt that they knew what was right and they were prepared to do what they felt was best. And their spiritual values took a lesser place than their own thoughts and their own ideas of what should be done in any given situation. And so here we find in the 19th verse that Asahel has his eye upon the fleeing Abner and he decides that he must get Abner and stop Abner and no doubt he would have killed him had he had the opportunity to do so. He pursued after Abner in a spirit of anger at the way in which Abner had instigated the appalling bloodletting that we studied in the previous verses at our last class. And no doubt Asahel also had in mind that if he could stop Abner and destroy Abner, it would bring an end to the useless bloodshed that had taken place up to this point because Abner's death would very clearly demoralise the army that he led. On the other hand, Abner, who was wiser, older and more experienced than the younger Asahel, wanted to avoid killing one of David's nephews. 
It was not simply that Abner had very warm and compassionate thoughts for Asahel. Killing men was never a problem to Abner. But political circumstances were important to him. And so therefore, when he says, look Asahel, I don't want to have to kill you. You turn aside. Go and chase somebody else, but don't chase me. Because I'm not going to let you kill me. If you get too close, that's what I'll have to do. But I do not want to have to kill you. Because there were political implications. And as we shall see in due course, God willing, Abner was a political man who liked to keep his options open. It was not so much a question of, this is right, and I must defend this position, or that is wrong, and I should repudiate that position. It was more a question of, well, there's an option, and there's an option there, Oh, I better keep the door open in both places so that we see how things develop. Not a very good ecclesial attitude, is it? And of course, here is Abner, and he's got to learn that once we set the processes of evil intent in motion, we might not find it so easy to call a halt when we desire to do so. We saw that lesson come out very clearly in our last class. We see it again tonight. Abner would have stopped Asahel. He would have said, look, this is enough. We don't want to take this any further. But Asahel was determined to conclude this matter. A matter that Abner had started. So Abner had started something which was to end in his own death. Surely there are lessons to be learned there. So in verse 22, Abner calls out to Asahel, and we need to have a, a picture in our mind of these two men running. Asahel was as fleet of foot as anyone could ever be. And obviously the narrative indicates that eventually he overtook Abner, who would have been a very, very fit person in any event, but not fit enough to outrun the fleet-footed younger Asahel. And as they're running, Abner running for his life and to stop uh, the, the necessity of having to turn and fight Asahel, he calls out to him and he says, how should I hold up my face to Joab thy brother? In verse 22. You see, Abner knew that if he slew Asahel, there would be an end to one of his political options. Once he slew Asahel, he would have Joab and Abishai to deal with. To say nothing of what he might have thought David might do under those circumstances. And Abner was well aware of the fact that Joab was as ruthless as himself. And so he didn't want this to become a blood feud between the house of Abner, or the house of Saul really, and the house of David's nephews. So in verse 23, Howbeit he refused to turn aside. Asahel would not be stopped. Wherefore Abner, with the hinder end of the spear, smote him under the fifth rib, that the spear came out behind him, and he fell down there and died in the same place. And it came to pass that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, stood still. So, here is the situation. Abner's got to survive. He's got no intention of lying down and dying at the hands of Asahel. And in those days, you know, the spear ends were often pointed 
And remember the case where we saw in one of the instances with David and Saul how that the spear had been stuck into the ground near Saul's bolster where he slept. And there was a cruise of water there as well. And so very often the spears, although they were quite long, probably four, six, eight feet long, they were very often sharpened on the, on the, on the reverse end. The main purpose of that was that it might be jammed into the ground near where the warrior slept or where he rested so that he could simply reach out his hand and grab it instantly in a moment of need or a moment of necessity. So here is Abner running along as fast as he can go with his spear in his hand and coming behind him is Asahel. And so when Abner realises that he cannot stop this foolhardy young man in his eagerness, Abner suddenly stops. And Asahel just simply runs straight onto the end of the spear. Uh, perhaps Abner gave it a bit of a thrust backwards as well as he judged where Asahel would be. So, when Abner struck him, it was totally unexpected as an action on the part of the hapless Asahel. He did not expect that to happen. So, you see, here we learn another lesson from this incident. But Asahel's zeal and his eagerness blinded him to possible dangers. He was not prepared for any eventuality. And here is a little example in a type of the warfare of faith. Asahel's motive was unquestionable. Abner had slain some of his brethren from the tribe of Judah. Abner had instituted the war that had now begun. Abner deserved everything that happened to him from a logical and from a rational point of view. Asahel's cause was just. But we can have a cause that is just. But if we are so eager and so zealous, which are wonderful attributes in the truth, and yet at the same time blind to any possible danger that might eventuate from our over-eagerness and over-zealousness, then we may suffer for that. And we may bring suffering upon others. As no doubt the death of Asahel brought upon his mother and all his family. And Asahel was no rank amateur in the affairs of war. He was numbered among the famous 30 valiant men who were close to David. We read of that in the second of Samuel chapter 23 and at verse 24. But for all of that, for the position that he held and the honour in which David had held him, the zealous impetuosity of youth was still one of his weaknesses and it became his undoing. Abner had certainly warned him, but he continued on, heedless of the danger, confident, self-assured, but soon to die. See, it doesn't pay for us to have confidence and be self-assured in our own ability that we can handle any particular situation. We all need the guidance of Yahweh in whatever we're dealing with and whatever happens in the circumstances of life. We need to be zealous, yes. We need to have the eagerness and the dedication and the fearless courage of an Asahel. Certainly we do. But we need to exercise wisdom. And we need to remember who is in charge of all things. And whose eye overlooks all the affairs? 
and who we want the guidance and the direction from. So Asahel meant well indeed and was a courageous young warrior in David's cause. But in this instance, he allowed himself to be carried away with zeal rather than wisdom. So while his conduct was fearless and heroic, it was also rash. And he took on a much wiser and more experienced Abner without giving it sufficient depth of thought. We not only need to exercise thought about things in which we are engaged upon in the service of the truth, we need to exercise a deep degree of thought, real contemplation and communion with Yahweh in prayer as David did and we find that time and time again in his seeking for guidance and direction in the affairs of life. So the lesson for all of us is that there are many experiences in life where we need to remain with our brethren. You see, Asahel could have waited a few more minutes and there was no doubt as to the direction in which Abner was running. He was headed back toward Mahanaim from which he had come on the eastern side of Jordan. A, a, a matter of a couple of minutes, perhaps getting his two brethren together, Joab and Abishai, and saying, look, what do we do about Abner? How should we handle this? How should we deal with this? He didn't wait. He couldn't wait. He was too eager. And so often we need to be with our brethren, particularly when there is an hour of crisis, when there's something that's gone wrong and some matter needs to be handled. Perhaps any one of us can handle a very difficult situation at certain times. But isn't it far better if we commune with our brethren and discuss a matter and pool together the thoughts and whatever wisdom there is among the brethren that are available at any particular time in one instance? But this young man set off on this venture alone, absolutely alone, because he believed that he could handle the situation. And that kind of recklessness cost him his life. Now when you think about it, lives in the truth are very, very valuable. We're not called to the truth to throw away our life, which is really what Asahel did. You see, when you think about it, the talent that he had, the ability that he had, that he was one of the 30 top men in David's group. And think of the future and the things that David has yet to establish in settling the tribe of Judah and in eventually uniting all the tribes and the work that had to be done. Think of the value that Asahel could have been to David. Think of what he could have done in service to David. And yet basically his life was thrown away. So we have to be very careful to avoid becoming overconfident in our own abilities to handle any particular situations, especially if they're difficult or dangerous. And this situation was both. It was difficult and it was dangerous. And we have to be prepared to be guided by older and wiser brethren at times too, particularly during the years of youth. As all of us know who have reached age, certain ages and have appreciated very, very deeply the guidance and the direction and the help and sometimes, I know in my own case, the very strong rebuke of older brethren when my thoughts haven't been quite perhaps as wise and as well thought out as was the case with Asahil. So Asahil was not to know it because he was dead now but the impending disposal of Abner was going to be in wiser hands than his death because the hand of providence is going to take care of events that would lead to the death of Adna.
And so we read there that Abner smote him under the fifth rib. It's a common expression, isn't it? One that is used uh, fairly often. But it's not literally correct. The word rendered fifth rib is a word which simply means the abdomen. And it's rendered in that way in the Septuagint version and in the Vulgate. And uh, if you have a look at Rotherham in the Jerusalem Bible, you'll see somewhat similar renderings there. So all those that came to the site where Abner is now fled onward, but there is the dead Asahel lying on the ground. And it says here in a rather unusual statement, as many as came stood still. They stopped dead when they saw Abner lying there, deceased upon the ground. Most unusual reaction, especially when men are busy at war and fighting each other. Normally at least some of the pursuers would have continued the chase of the, of the enemy. So you see, there was a delay. And if, if Asahel had been prepared to have that delay before just simply rushing off in his zeal and his eagerness, he may not have lost his life. And it seems as though there was just a stunned effect upon the brethren when they beheld Asahel's death and upon all that simply stood unbelievingly besides this dead body of Asahel. But you see, when you look at verse 24, you see the idea of experience. Because verse 24 tells us, Joab also and Abishai, his two brothers, pursued after Abner. And the sun went down when they would come to the hill of Ammar. Joab and Abishai, they didn't stop. They didn't stand by the, the dead brother. Although they would have been the very ones that you would have expected to do that. They would have time to mourn later on. They would have time to, to behold the dead face of their brother and to carry him eventually to his grave. But there was a work to do. And they were involved in it. And so the revised version renders that, but Joab and Abishai pursued after Abner. In other words, Joab and Abishai did not stop with all the others to peer at the dead body and say, oh, poor Asahel, isn't it terrible? Look what's happened to him. What a disaster. What are we going to do without Asahel? Look what's happened to him. And the talk would have gone on and on among all these brethren, but not with Joab and Abishai. But Joab and Abishai pursued after Abner. They didn't remain stupefied with grief, although it was their own brother. They would express their grief later. But you see, Joab had a razor-sharp mind, especially at seeing something quickly that could be turned to his own advantage. And so Joab and his brother continued the pursuit after Abner. Though, of course, Abner is now given the opportunity to make his escape. And so verse 25 tells us that the children of Benjamin gathered themselves together after Abner and became one troop and stood on the top of a hill. No doubt the picture we are to get in our minds here from verse 25 is that when the remnants of Abner's army had fled sufficiently toward the east, away from the men of Joab and the men of Judah, and they had put a sufficient valley, a distance between themselves, that they were reasonably safe, they all came together around Abner and turned to look back at the pursuing Joab and Abishai and the men of Judah. They gathered to Abner. This, of course, is Saul's own tribe. And no doubt they remained loyal, remembering the way in which Saul had favoured his own tribe. There's a very important verse in the first of Samuel 22 and verse 7 which we considered when we went through that chapter, how that toward the latter part of Saul's life, the only people he would trust around him were men of his own tribe. 
He didn't really trust anybody. But the men that were all around him in that part of his life, as we mentioned, first of Samuel chapter 22 and verse 7, they were men of Benjamin. So in verse 26, Abner called to Joab. Imagine one group on one hill, a wide valley, another group on the other hill, one on the east and one on the west. Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Knowest thou not that it will be bitterness in the latter end? How long shall it be then? Ere thou bid the people return from following their brethren. Abner has changed his tune now. And he's become very pious all of a sudden. Because he lost the battle. One cannot help but wonder what would have been Abner's degree of piousness or piety had he been the victor on this day and how ruthlessly he would have pursued his advantage. So here now is Abner making a very pious appeal to Joab. There's something to be learned about that too, isn't it? Because in that pious appeal we really see the true Abner. Abner was not a pious man. He was not a godly man. He was not a man moved by the things of the Spirit that he might honour God above all other considerations. By no means whatever. So we know that when he makes this appeal to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? How long do we go on like this? We know that that's not the true Abner. We know that. Because we've seen the true Abner already. And we'll see more of the true Abner a little later. So we have to know our brethren well enough to be able to place reliance on their word, to be able to trust them, to be able to depend upon them for their help and for their advice and for their wise leadership and guidance in time of need. Abner was really simply after a truce. That was all he wanted. So the answer to Abner's pleading question is that uh, it will not cease. He says, shall the sword devour forever? The answer was, well, it won't cease. That it won't devour forever. That it will only cease under divine guidance and in God's way. And as long as men are dominated by unrestrained lust and personal ambition, such as Abner, then wars will continue amongst brethren. So Abner, in asking this very question, was a classic example of the type of character that is responsible for wars. Call for peace when on the losing side, but pursue ruthlessly the battle when there's a chance of being on the winning side. But we know that when the Prince of Peace rules the nations, then wars will cease. Isaiah 2, Micah 4, Psalm 72, we're familiar with all those passages. We long for that time and we wait for that time to come. When men's minds will be so moved and motivated by the things of the truth that even the arts of war will be forgotten. The arts of war themselves will be, will be forgotten. So, knowest thou not that it will be bitterness in the latter end, says Adna? Well, of course. But again, he sounds very pious here, doesn't he? In verse 26. Very, very pious. But Abner wouldn't have been speaking like that had his side been victorious in this, in this battle. He wouldn't have been talking like this because this is not the real Abner. 
So Joab gives him an answer in verse 27. Joab said, As God liveth, unless thou had spoken, surely then in the morning the people had gone up every one from following his brother. The revised version renders that, If thou hadst not spoken, surely then in the morning the people had gone away, nor followed every one his brother. You see, this reply from Joab refers not to Abner's call for a truce, but to his initial words, which had triggered off the bloodshed. It's almost like saying, in fact it is saying, think back to where all this started. You now want to know if the sword is going to devour forever. But, what started all this? Where did it all begin? And really, Joab's reply brings to light a very interesting sidelight on David's attitude toward the possibility of, of a battle. Because Joab's words appear to imply here that although his men had been prepared for conflict, they would have avoided it if possible. They would have done so. They didn't start the war. It was David's ideal to win Israel over through his own honesty and integrity and his sound leadership. We've already seen that. But the very first thing he did was to send messengers to Jabesh Gilead, who were the greatest friends that Saul had had in the nation. David wanted to make peace with the men of Gilead so that it could not be said that he ever desired to take the throne over the dead body of another king. And so, here is the situation that, that Joab is trying to get Abner to see that he's responsible for all these things that have happened. So Joab, we read in verse 28, blew a trumpet. Joab agreed to the truce because there was no point in pursuing forever at this particular stage. He always knew that there would be a time and he was not going to let Abner get away with murdering his brother. Be sure of that. Joab has that in mind. He blows the trumpet in verse 28, certainly. But, there's not going to be a truce between Abner and Joab. Again, we see there that Joab's eventual action in handling Abner was not something that was in accordance with David's will or David's ideas. David was not happy about what Joab actually did when he took Abner's life. So we read in verse 29 that Abner and his men walked all that night to Mahanaim. So he retired with his army, disconsolate, defeated, and yet obviously having to keep that distance because he didn't know whether Joab and the men of Judah would proceed uh, after him and still keep going. So in verse 30 and 31, Joab returned from following Abner and when he had gathered all the people together, there lacked of David's servants, 19 men and Asahel. That's rather wonderful, isn't it? It doesn't just say 20 men. Asahel, because he was favoured among the top 30 men around David, is given a special mention. There lacked of David's servants, 19 men and Asahel, 20 altogether. But the servants of David had smitten of Benjamin and of Abner's men, so that 360 men died. Now let's just think of this. A total of 380 men had lost their lives that day, something that should never have happened, that which was the fearful and dreadful result of Abner's 
self-confidence and his ambition. You see, the Benjamites were really renowned fighting men. So that the disparity in the numbers of deaths is really quite remarkable. We read often in the scriptures of the Benjamites that they were skilled with a sword, skilled with a, uh, with a sling, uh, skilled with a bow and arrow and so forth. They were skilled fighting men, the men of Benjamin, possibly the best tribe of fighting men in the nation. And yet here they are ignominiously defeated by probably an inferior army. You see, the hand of providence was protecting David and David's interests. And it's got to be conceded here, of course, that Joab was a very fearless and brilliant military tactician himself. But nevertheless, here is evidence of the hand of providence. David has been promised the throne. He's been anointed king over all the tribes of Israel. Yahweh is going to see that he gets it. So it really doesn't matter. All the admirals in the world could line up their armies and face down Joab and Abishai and David himself, but they weren't going to win. And so in verse 32, we have the account of the burial of Asahel. You know, Zeruiah's husband is never mentioned in Scripture. He was probably a, a very great friend of David, being married to his sister. But he's never ever mentioned in Scripture. And this verse would lend credence to the view that, that at this stage he was already dead. He'd passed off the scene. So it is interesting that David's brother-in-law came from the same town as David's own family. That's possibly the way in which his sister became married to this particular man. We know that Bethlehem was an 11-mile march from Gibeon. And then uh, Joab, having buried his brother, he and his men continued their march through the night and they arrived back at Hebron at dawn the following morning. So the battle between the forces of Abner and Joab, although really only a fairly minor affair in regard in relation to epic battles, certainly it was something that was going to have very far-reaching consequences as we're going to see as we go on through these chapters. But uh, so far as Adna was concerned, undoubtedly he was the biggest single factor preventing David from uniting all the tribes under his leadership. David would have done that, but the fly in the ointment, if we might use that simile, the fly in the ointment was Abner, unquestionably. And as a result of this particular battle here, Abner was shortly to be removed from the scene altogether. You see, the hand of providence has a way of dealing with things that we ourselves don't know how to handle. Very, very many times we have issues in life where we really simply do not know what to do for the best. It's very, very difficult in many instances in life. And therefore we have to turn to Yahweh, we have to open the word, we have to say to ourselves... What would Yahweh have us do in these circumstances? Very often the word itself will bring us the answer. Someone may come to mind. Nehemiah, Jacob, Jeremiah, the Apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And there will be the answer. But the whole point that we're trying to stress here is that we do not trust in our own confidence Abner did that, Joab did that time and time again. Many of these great warriors of old did that. They were self-assured, self-confident. Asahel, he had confidence that he could outrun Abner. 
that he didn't realise that he couldn't outsmart him without the help of Yahweh. It's astonishing in the way it works and in what it produces. And as we come to the end of this chapter, it just happens that we have marked in here the very verse that our brother Gavin referred us to earlier from James chapter 4 and verse 1, which we felt was a very apt verse with which to conclude the events of this chapter. When James says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members. So in chapter 3, we read this very tragic statement in the beginning of the chapter. Now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. They're very sad words, aren't they? You know, sometimes perhaps we tend to imagine that David's ascension to the throne over Judah at Hebron was something of a triumph for David personally after so many years of trial and suffering. I dare say that in a sense that would be quite so. But certainly his faith was vindicated in that Judah accepted him and he is now actually a king and he has taken a step nearer to the fulfilment of what was prophesied in the first of Samuel chapter 16, that he would be king over all the united tribes. But looking at it in a wider sense, it was not really a great victory for David because he still had many trials and tribulations to face before becoming king over all the twelve tribes and uniting them with one voice and one mind for at least an element of time in one kingdom. We know that David reigned from Hebron over the tribe of Judah for seven years and six months. We were told that in chapter 2 and verse 11. It was a long time, I suppose, but it was not a time of peace and well-being for the people of Israel. It It wasn't a time of peace at all because it was a time of war. We're reading here now in chapter 3 and verse 1. A time of war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And the only political consolation for David was that as the years passed, he became stronger and the house of Saul grew progressively weaker. So there were continual military clashes between these two factions when the nation should have been united as one. So the nation continued in a a sort of a a, a moving, uh, unsettled pattern of events existing in a state of anxiety and tension and and caused by the continuing friction and the, the political uncertainty. And you see, throughout the whole of this time, Abner refused to cease agitating. He would not go to David and say, all right, I know you've got to be king over all the twelve tribes. It's got to happen sooner or later because Yahweh has declared it's going to be so. So let's do it now. Let's stop the fighting. Let's stop the bloodshed. Let's put an end to all of this and get on to building and uniting the kingdom and strengthening the kingdom as one kingdom under your rulership, under Yahweh. That's what he could have done. That's what he should have done. But he kept things boiling for all that time. How many lives were destroyed? How many families were broken up because of deaths that should never have occurred? You see, here is the Abner. So the precise circumstances 
of that opening statement, although they're rather vague, they're a little difficult to determine. Because Abner had taken Saul's son Ishbosheth, set him up as a king, although he was the real power behind the throne. But although all this is happening, we have David in Hebron over all this length of time. Now the question comes to mind, surely, why did David tolerate such a state of affairs for so long? Why did he not not assemble his disciplined army and march forth with the very strongest army he could muster and force a showdown, which he could well have done by claiming that he was taking this action, quote, in the best interest of the nation. We hear those words again and again from all the pollies in Canberra, don't we? We must act in the best interest of the nation. And what they do then is act in what is in the best interest of themselves. But David could legitimately have said, well, look, this has got to finish. We're not going to go on like this. Abner's got to be put in his place. Ishboth has, has got to voluntarily resign the, 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 any uh, allegation of being a king because it's not his right anymore. And we've got to press on, even if we've got to use the greatest possible force and we're going to unite this kingdom come what may. Why did he do that? Simply because he had learned to wait upon Yahweh. That's the reason. And to let Yahweh manipulate events that would eventually bring David to ascend the throne over all the united tribes. And you see, in the affairs of life, we have to learn to be like that too. There are very often things that we can do that we can take into our own hands and we can maybe force issues to our own advantage. But not always wisely so. In fact, really wisely so when we act that way. But on the other hand, to put trust and faith and confidence in Yahweh, knowing that he is all-seeing, that nothing passes his gaze or his observation, that the angels are everywhere in the will and the purpose of God, that we have angels here with us in this hall tonight, that the angels of Yahweh oversee the affairs of his people. David knew that. That's why he didn't rush forth and lead an army and he could have cleaned this matter up in a very short space of time. So what David did was to rest upon Yahweh. Remember that he had maintained a careful respect for Saul as well. And imagine how it may have been seen in the eyes of the the other 12 tribes, the other 11 tribes, if David had gone to war against the house of Saul. You see, it wasn't wise to do that. Because then it could have been said, I hear this young upstart from the tribe of Judah, David. He's determined. All right, we know that he's been anointed king, but he's going to get that throne if he's got to annihilate the whole house of Saul to do it. He wasn't going to do that. That was in Yahweh's hands. Remember when when his close friends had said to him, now's your opportunity to get caught Saul. In the cave, twice in a cave, caught Saul. David said to them, Yahweh will handle this. Yahweh will handle this. And he did. So David had maintained a careful respect for Saul. And obviously, by implication, Saul's successors, he wasn't going to destroy that now. The integrity he had shown toward the house of Saul, he wasn't going to obliterate that. And again and again, David declined to use fleshly might for the purpose of seizing power. Again and again he did that. His simple desire 
that was lost sight of really in his moments of weakness that we're going to come to and we've seen some of them, we'll see some more. But basically, his simple desire was to do the will of Yahweh and to let Yahweh guide events in his life, permit the wise hand hand of providence to guide him in the things that had to be done. And so that throughout the course of what is termed here this long war, we know that David's cause was a just one, but Ishbosheth was not. And we know that David's conduct throughout this period was governed by the knowledge that his cause was just, yet leaving everything in the hands of Almighty God. And David also knew that those who were fighting him, led by Abner, were really fighting Yahweh. They thought they were fighting David. They thought they were preventing him from getting the unification of all the twelve tribes because while Ishbosheth was there, they thought they could carry on with the house of Saul and maintain the house of Saul. But David knew that although these men thought they were fighting him, they weren't fighting him at all. They were fighting Yahweh. And so therefore they couldn't win. They couldn't win. And think again about that first verse there. Those years may well have proven tedious and frustrating for David and his men and all those who were there with him and supported him, those of the tribe of Judah. They may have have proved to be tedious years, frustrating years. They may well have become dispirited during that time and think to themselves, when is all this going to end? When are we going to get to unite all the tribes and have what Yahweh said we're going to have? Patience, patience, patience. You see, this is a type of the warfare of faith which has to be patiently waged. Not just waged, patiently waged. There's got to be a long war as we have it described here. There's got to be a long war before the saints of God have had their faith tested and strengthened and are then prepared to take control of the kingdom and reign with the greater than David. That's the lesson here. Loud and clear. What a tremendous lesson. Trial, difficulty, danger, discomfort, frustration, with no immediate sign of relief over those years, but all to be borne with patience and fortitude in faith that ultimately God will give us the victory. But on the other hand, what utter folly Abner was pursuing, what utter folly, his attempts to prop up a kingdom in opposition to David with a weak Ishbosheth on the throne, represented an astonishing continuation of exactly the same policy and attitude that had brought Saul to ruin. Here's Adna, his uncle, doing exactly what Saul did, in the same way, with the same disposition, the same futile goals and ambitions. What was Saul's goal? Not to positively lead the nation and to build up and unite the kingdom, to prevent David from getting on the throne. That's what motivated Saul. He had to prevent David. Remember what he said to Jonathan? As long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the earth, thou shalt never get the throne over Israel. He's Adam. Exactly the same. 
blindly failing to learn the lesson of Saul's failure. And Abner was in danger for another reason as well. Because on David's side of the dreadful controversy that was raging here, almost identical in outlook in many ways in character and disposition to him was Joab. And Joab was nursing a desire for revenge against Abner because Abner had taken the life of Joab's brother, Asahel. Why cannot men understand the simple statement in Romans 12 and verse 19 that is taken from the law in Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine, I will repay, said Yahweh. Why can't men understand that? Why do they want revenge? And the Lord's words in the so-called Lord's Prayer, the very opposite of that, isn't it? When he tells us clearly and, and without any shadow of a doubt as to its meaning that it is absolutely futile for us to ask God to forgive us for our sins against him unless we are prepared to forgive those who have sinned and transgressed against us. That's dealing with personal sins between ourselves, not dealing with sins against God. They have to be dealt with by God or they have to be dealt with in God's way. But you see, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Why couldn't Abner have had a view like that and said, well look, I'm not happy about seeing the the house of Saul lose the throne. I'm not happy about David taking his place. But if it's God's will and God has declared that, so be it. What can I do about it? I must accept it and in a good spirit. Joab could have said, as David did in regard to Saul, well, very well, Abner has murdered, he's killed my brother Asahel, completely forgetting that Asahel brought it upon himself. Not that that makes it right, but it was Asahel's foolishness and unwise conduct that brought death to him. Wasn't necessarily the evil intent of Abner at all, but completely forgetting that, Joab wants blood. You see, those things are very important, aren't they? So Abner, because of his policy, his disposition, his character and his actions, time after time, he was a doomed man. And we will see that, God willing, at our next class. So we need to see the foolishness of the actions of men in contrast to things that are required in the teaching of Yahweh and his word. And so therefore... The hand of God was with David. We might look at this picture here in this simple little statement. Now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And we might think to ourselves, nothing but strife, contention, struggling, frustration, difficulty, trials. But in the words that follow, David waxed stronger and stronger and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. There is the overriding hand of providence above it all. The angels were at work. David was being slowly but surely strengthened in his position despite the difficulties. And the time would come when there would be a complete turnaround in the whole picture that has been before us in this chapter. And we will see the hand of providence turn this to his advantage and to the advantage of his faithful servant David.